The Scrap Show, a conversation between friends and a bright future. Brian Taylor, Senior Editor with the Recycling Today Media Group, and welcome to The Scrap Show. As you know, if you've listened to previous editions, we're here to talk about scrap recycling. Each episode, I'll get a chance to find out a little more about someone's journey through the scrap industry. Today, it is my pleasure to be conversing with Bob Stein, Robert Stein. Bob spent several decades primarily on the non-ferrous trading side of the industry. If you don't already recognize Bob, you'll recognize some of the companies he's worked for. We'll get to that in a little bit. Or you may recognize him for the time he spent devoted to trade association activities, and in particular, the Bureau of International Recycling, the BIR. Bob, welcome to the Scrap Show. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. Uh, perhaps it makes sense to begin at the starting line for you. When and how did you get your start in the scrap business or in the metals business? Well, I guess my real first start was when I was about seven years old, uh, sweeping the floor of my grandfather's uh, uh, scrap company in, in uh, Vancouver, Canada, uh -huh. and uh, having other big responsibilities like licking stamps and uh, sealing envelopes for which I was paid, uh, I think, $5 a week. Okay. Probably uh, had more disposable income then than I did for many years thereafter. <laughs> What about a little bit later in life? Tell us about Robert Stein in the, in the early 20s, his mid-20s. When did you start actually uh, getting a little more involved in the industry? A real job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I spent about a year in my family's business, and I have to say I didn't like it. I, I know nothing about machines. In fact, I just found out that we do have a hammer in the house here uh, many, many years later. Uh, and I didn't like walking around in the mud of Vancouver of a Vancouver scrapyard. Mm -hmm. And I told my dad I really wasn't interested on a, on a number of levels in, in taking over the family business. I certainly wanted to, to do it alone, if you will. I was a, a product of the era, if you will. And I was interviewed by a very well-known and, and guilt-edged trading company, if you will. It was owned by uh, S.G. Warburg and Company. Mm. Uh, that was Brandeis Goldschmidt, uh, okay. which was London-based. Uh, so I evolved into it through the family business and through an interest in uh, just how, what was done with metals after they were collected in the scrapyard. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Okay. And what did you find out? What, was, what did that job entail with the trading house? Well, uh, Brandeis was a, a, a very well-established and, and broad-based company with offices around the world. Uh, and it, it took me back, I think, to memories of walking around my grandfather's place and seeing a, a steel drum with markings on it before scrap was containerized for shipment. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd write a destination with a sequential number. So 
when things got stolen, they could identify what was missing. And the drum said that this was going to Bombay. Uh -huh. And it instilled in me, I, I just had this, this thought of how on earth does a scrapyard in Vancouver, British Columbia, find a home for its metals in Bombay? It mm -hmm. mystified me. Right. Uh, and that really ignited my interest in, uh, in international trade and foreign trade and in the trade of metals and the financial side of it. I see. Um, at, at Brandeis, mm -hmm. um, if you want me to head into that for a moment. Yeah, please, um, please. Uh, it was, as I mentioned, it was owned by the S.G. Warburg uh, group, Sir Sigmund Warburg, who was a, uh, what we used to call a merchant banker, I suppose that's an eye banker, today's parlance, okay. uh, in London. And this metals company he had acquired because of financial uh, uh, dealings they had with the Russians on aluminum. That was all part of the, a big package. Um, and I had the opportunity there to work with people who I think I thought then and think now were genius. Mm -hmm. I worked for uh, what most in the industry consider to be a tyrannical boss uh, who really instilled in me the art of communication, uh, listening to what people were saying and, and what my responses were, was, was I pertinent to the conversation? Uh, I was fortunate to have that kind of a background and to have an introduction to a company like that through my family's business that really was a springboard uh, for my career. Okay. All right. Um, and how long were you with, with that organization, with the Warburg organization? Uh, I was with Brandeis for eight years, mm -hmm. and that had me posted in London and uh, at their London office. Uh, and if those of your listeners who may have seen uh, the movie uh, Mary Poppins, uh, of three old men sitting around at the very beginning in those stuffy shirts, that's what their office was like. <laughs> Brandeis was housed in the Warburg building, which was full of people who were nobility, I suppose, and had titles like sir and lord. And it was a rather stifling place. And I, I do remember uh, having to wear a jacket and tie in the summertime in a poorly air-conditioned building. Uh -huh. And I have fond memories of reading a note on the bulletin board from the HR department that um, the use of deodorant is encouraged among our employees as the heat in the building seems to have caused bodily odors from some of our staff. Oh, if you have any questions, etc. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it was a better way of just face-to-face -face telling people that they didn't smell good. But very British, very, very formal, and uh, really an eye-opener. During that time, I was also sent to a company called Elkington Copper Refineries, mm -hmm. uh, which was owned by Brandeis. Okay. And I spent a month working in a copper uh, smelter and refinery, ah. which was fantastic to have that exposure at, at a young uh, age and the start of my career. Right. Was that sort of the segue into secondary metal? Was that a scrap melting smelter and refinery or, or not yet? 
Yes. It was. Yeah. Solely fueled, uh, some blister copper, but for the most part, just scrap metal oh, okay. that would arrive from uh, scrap dealers, mostly in the United, uh, United Kingdom, mm-hmm. packed in burlap bags. And uh, to see that process, that traditional process uh, and the sequential uh, uh, feed of copper into various furnaces to produce an anode and then a cathode right. was fantastic. I mean, I learned so much there. Uh, and it was it was very beneficial for sure. Sure. So it, once you got into the buying and selling of scrap, that kind of lets you know what the end consumer wants and doesn't want in his or her furnace. I mean, there, I'm sure there you learned quite a bit about good feedstock versus bad feedstock in a, in a position like that. Yeah, and I think Brian that that's important if mm-hmm. you are processing, buying, processing, and selling whatever to know what your product is being used for. What are they doing with my scrap? What are their mm-hmm. methods? What can I do to, to uh, make it a proper package for them? Okay, terrific. What happened after, what was next for you after the Brandeis experience? Uh, still sticking with Brandeis, okay. I uh, ran their office in Tokyo for right ah. on an interim basis on two occasions for a total of a year of change. Uh, and of course, that was truly international. Sure. Just by <laughs> the fact that it's Japan, uh, representing this group uh, that had uh, offices and agencies throughout the world, not dealing in scrap at all, mm-hmm. uh, precious metals, ferroalloys, chemicals, all kinds of things okay. that uh, I didn't have much knowledge of, but I learned. And the principles of uh, transportation, contractual uh, uh, items, etc. the same as scrap, just different stuff. Okay. Uh, after almost uh, eight years with them and uh, a request by them to open an office for them in China, Mm. uh, spending six months in China and six months in Japan, uh, having an office in China in those days consisted of a small hotel room, uh, government supervision, if you will. (laughs) uh, And that was your office and where you lived. And when you live in the Far East, you get calls 24 hours a day. Sure. Uh, and in the end, we didn't come to financial terms. And I left the company f- and joined Commercial Metals Company okay. in Dallas. Um, they hired me to, as they said, go somewhere for us. Um, and that somewhere <laughs> ended up being, uh, I can think of a few options they might have thought of later. But uh, right. <laughs> the, the, uh, I was uh, asked to go to Los Angeles and served as the manager of their a very large non-ferrous scrap operation. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, handling, oh, 1,500 to 2,000 tons of mostly copper. Was that a uh, warehouse or also a processing facility? Processing, uh-huh. warehousing. Okay. And it had a high temperature alloy division on the, on the same location. Mm-hmm. And of course, almost all of that scrap went to the Far East, as so much West Coast scrap did in those days. Okay. Uh, and that was a, a that was very interesting, a real eye opener for me. Uh, after about a year and a half there, they asked me to come to Dallas, where I traded uh, copper for the most part. Okay, and also became very involved in the financial aspect of commodities trading, hmm. uh, using uh, uh, futures contracts to right. finance uh, warehouse stocks. Okay, and it was. Uh, it was an interesting 
ordeal. I, I, I do recall we used to get physical delivery of warehouse warrants, oh, okay. um, which if properly endorsed, you could take to a warehouse and get copper. Uh, at some point, uh, somebody from our uh, internal uh, audit department took notice of millions upon millions of pounds of warrants that we held and, and uh, called me and asked me where those warrants might be. I told him that they were probably still on the bulletin board in the company lunchroom, which he didn't like too much. <laughs> so was we, that in theory, at least a risk management, you know, uh, exercise at that point? Was it, it what we call hedging today or? No, no, it was strictly buying uh, nearby copper mm -hmm. that was in the warehouse in the Comex registered warehouses okay. and selling it in the future, actually uh, taking delivery in the sense that we could go into a warehouse and get that copper. So it was a finance game. Okay. The calculation of, of buying a nearby contract and selling the forwards mm -hmm. and calculating the yield. Uh -huh. So that would be measuring the cost of insurance, the cost of storage, your cost of money, and adding all of that up for a certain period of time. Could you make money doing that? And uh -huh. the answer was often, <laughs> not always, <laughs> but often. That's good. And so if, if your total cost was, uh, I don't know, three cents per pound over six months, and you could get four cents a pound in a contango market where the right. futures are worth more than the buys, then it was a viable operation. And, and uh, we became very active in it in copper and also in precious metals. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. How long did you stay with CMC? Oh, I have to calculate this now. Um, I joined in, I think it was four years. Okay. Three or four years. Uh, involved mostly, as I said, in Dallas with uh, mm -hmm. trading of uh, copper, swapping uh, copper scrap for copper cathodes, marketing the cathodes to various wire companies in the United States, oh, uh, or converting it into rod. And this gave all the yards a, a leg up uh, because we applied the premiums that we were getting back to them and it mm -hmm. made them more competitive on the streets. Uh -huh. Okay, very interesting. What was next for you, Bob? Didn't like big companies uh -huh. and commercial just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger <clears throat> and uh, more uh, uh, bureaucratic. And a, a very dear friend of mine had been asked me to come for work for him for many years. And that was Seymour Padness in Holland, Michigan. Uh-huh, right. Who had a major influence on uh, on my life and and uh, th this was a hardworking, honest and sincere gentleman. Mm -hmm. And I joined them and worked there for eighteen years. Eighteen years, okay. So that eighteen was a, years, a, a major stretch and of your career. It was, and and most of the time there, I spent. Uh, I'd set up a, a kind of like an internal trading company, and we bought and sold metals in the United States and overseas. So it was something new for them. Okay. Being a traditional, what we used to call a, a, a wholesale scrapyard that collected scrap from industry and, and mm -hmm. from other dealers and preparing it for recycling. And instead of Padness selling it to brokers, right. they became the broker and captured that income. Okay. That was the basis for it. Mm -hmm. And it worked. 
See, it worked. And from Padness, I, uh, again, a friend of mine had asked me to work for him for a number of years, and um, I did. And that was Rob Goldstein of Alter Trading. Okay, St. Louis-based? Yep. And Alter, I think now has, I don't know, 60 or 70 scrap here. It's likely the largest, one of the largest privately owned uh, scrap recycling companies in, in the country. Um, and the idea there was the same, that, mm -hmm. that Alter should uh, become more integrated, in its, especially in its sales, and, and uh, looking at the world in, in a broader way than it previously had. Its focus had been on Ferris. And Rob Goldstein, who was the, uh, the president of the company, had wanted non-Ferris to represent at least half uh, of um, the company's uh, revenue and income. I see. Uh, it worked as far as revenue. I'm not sure about the income, but uh, uh, at the time, we were uh, under threat, if you would, because buyers from China mm -hmm. were going to many of our smaller suppliers, and these are other smaller scrap yards, mm -hmm. and buying directly from them uh -huh. mixed loads of metals. Uh, in some cases, paying cash. Okay. Uh, in some cases, uh, uh, just doing business in a way that Alter wouldn't and couldn't for ethical reasons. Mm. And my attitude was, if you, as in China, are sending your buyers here to interfere with our markets, we're going to go there and sell in your consuming sector. All right, so if, if these people were here competing with us on the buy side, we were going to do the same on the sell side. Didn't quite work like that. Okay. But it certainly put us in a position to capture much more margin than mm. would otherwise be available and okay. still maintain the ethical practices that the Goldstein family uh, had uh, undertaken for at that time about a century i think we had 18 yards at that time right uh, and it was a scary proposition uh rob's late father bernie uh who was a a, a degreed lawyer mm -hmm. who claimed to be the best lawyer in iowa history he'd never lost a case of course he'd never fought one but uh and we sat down at dinner one night uh, the three of us, and Bernie said to me, do they have the rule of law? Does the rule of law exist in China? And I thought about it. Honestly, I didn't know quite what the hell he was talking about. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you should move forward and open an office there because your idea has it. And, uh, we did. Um, I figured they had the rule of law because if anybody did anything wrong, they'd put a bullet in the guy's head and send an invoice for the shell to, um, or they'd send the shell back to the family. It's okay. certainly a legal system. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it might not be what we thought of it, uh, our interpretation, but clearly it was there. Um, so we opened an office in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And whether we competed with those guys who were coming around with the suitcases of cash, I don't know. But it added margin to us, and it worked. 
my math is correct, that you're between the, the Padnos and Ultra years, you spent about 30 years working for family businesses. So that must be where you were, were most comfortable. Yeah, I think that family businesses that are, that are uh, good, honest operators in all sense of that word mm -hmm. attracted me. I came from a family business Right. Uh, also with high ethical standards and, and uh, as far as I could ever find out, just one set of books and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it was pounded into me as, as a kid that, that this was the way we ran our business. And I think that attracted me. Certainly, uh, I had the good fortune and, and the wherewithal to uh, hang my hat with good, honest people. And that certainly would be the Padness family and the Goldstein families. Uh, there, there was at the time, and there probably still is, an opportunity for companies like that uh, to expand. Many of them have made a lot of money, mm -hmm. uh, and they have the ability, should have the ability, uh, to buy scrap on the street and sell it to a furnace, to finance it, to grow their businesses, uh, to become more diverse than perhaps they had been in the past. Okay, terrific. The, another observation that, that strikes me is that you had left a company, maybe a couple of different companies, you know, that are just a little too large. But yet this sort of the irony here is you, you joined smaller companies that they both got a lot larger while you were there. I guess that's in part <laughs> because hopefully you were doing your job well. So I guess it's just sort of a, if you do your job well, the company gets large anyhow. I suppose I, I don't uh, credit myself for much of their growth in, in either of the places. Um, and, and yes, I, it, it's, um, it, it's a, a, an irony of sorts, right? But uh, the companies, uh, both of those companies, uh, being family-oriented, tended to uh, treat their employees well. Uh, and, you know, there's that old handshake when you join the company, welcome to the family, et cetera. Right. Uh, and those were truisms in, in both places uh, that, that they treated me well, uh, compensated me fairly, and allowed me to share in the benefits of the gains that they were making. Uh, and the Goldsteins uh, were responsible really for a very, very significant uh, part of, of whatever success I had in the business. They were open-minded, hmm. uh, hired good people. Uh, I guess I was an okay, I was adequate. Um, and, and to let them run the business. Right. Um, hmm. And it clearly is a great way to run a company. Uh, to let employees know how the company is doing, or what their objectives are, okay. what they what the basis of their business was and and uh, will be as we move forward. Very good. You, I, a question I had for you was, you know, how you became involved in the international or global market. We've pretty well covered that, so maybe I'll modify that question a bit to ask specifically about your BIR involvement. Um, you know, how did that start, and what did you? You know, what are the benefits you think for a scrap company to be involved in, in, in BI or any trade association like ISRI that, uh, you know, that brings people together, brings traders and recyclers together? 
Seymour Padness encouraged me to accompany him to a BIR meeting in about 1984. Okay. Uh, he had had a, a, a slight medical issue and uh, his wife was not gonna let Seymour go alone. Ah, uh, So I went with him and I'm meeting all these people from all over the world. Seymour at the time had been a vice president of BIR, was very active and everybody mm -hmm. knew. Okay. Uh, and that was my initial introduction to BIR. Uh, and it really, it, great organization to meet people. Involvement in it uh, brings another level of uh, exposure, if you will, to international mm -hmm. markets. Okay. And I decided if I was going to go to these meetings, I might as well do something uh, in, in look to, to help our industry, uh, but also to help us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess there was in part a selfish motive to it. Uh, it we are in business after all. Right. Uh, but to this day, uh, and ISRI, not as much. ISRI was a different uh, styled organization. Uh, its leaders were often uh, owners of smaller companies. Uh, and BIR, often it was larger companies or, or uh, conglomerates that, the Europeans had established long before that became a, 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 an MO here in the United States. I see. Uh, both great organizations, a little bit different in their, in their focus, uh, but both very valuable. And I would encourage anybody uh, not only to go to these meetings, but to be involved. It's your industry mm -hmm. uh, and it needs people to work within it. Uh, to improve where it's possible to to advocate uh, for a business that is so often maligned by government officials, by the general public. Uh, we're not the rag pickers of the 1880s. And mm -hmm. the world needs to know that. Very good. Uh, you spent six months in China at a time when very few Westerners were there. So I'm curious maybe about your observations of, of China as an influence on the non-ferrous market. It, it, it seemed to have ch it changed tremendously from what I know, from what I've reported on during the 30 or so years you were, you were in the business. Uh, what's your impression of how the market changed once 1.3 billion people started urbanizing and they needed so much copper that uh, the rest of the world had to ship it? How did that change the way the U.S. non-ferrous scrap market operated? Well, it's tremendously impactful. Incidentally, I did not spend the six months in oh. China. I see. Those, they, that they had to recommend it uh, or requested me to do. Uh, I left <laughs> before that came to fruition. Uh, but I probably cumulatively spent more time than that okay. over the years. Uh, in the early 90s, mm. uh, I went to China for the first time. Right. And okay. I think it was about 94. It had, that trip was prompted by a number of people coming to the scrapyards up in Michigan to, mm -hmm. to the Padness here. I was looking for scrap. It was a very naive market. I remember one of the first people I met who came to the yard was a restaurant owner in Chicago. And uh, he had friends in China, the usual story, or a brother-in-law, whomever, mm -hmm. some kind of a connection. And he really, really wanted to buy magnet wire. That was cheap in the United States compared to other forms of copper wire scrap. And when we took him out to the warehouse, 
he said, and he asked me, they're really only gonna want this red enameled wire because that's a lucky color in China. And I thought, well, that ain't gonna happen. Um, <laughs> and clearly it didn't. But that was the type of thing, buying anything at prices uh, that American scrap dealers weren't used to receiving for their mm -hmm. material, mm -hmm. benefiting from extremely low labor at that time uh, and the absolute need uh, to use secondary metals in their growth. The, the transportation infrastructure in, in China made it almost impossible to get uh, mined materials uh, from point A to point B. Wow. Uh, and also, look, the, the scrap industry in China, uh, for the most part, of uh, people on bicycles with, with um, or wagons or whatever it was, it was an infrastructural and internal problem mm -hmm. uh, for China as it grew and as it industrialized. Right. Uh, they had the wisdom to understand uh, and to know that scrap metal represented an above ground mine, if you mm -hmm. will. Um, and the United States uh, was a, had vast quantities of right. both, by the way, both mined material and, uh, and scrap copper. Mm -hmm. uh, and also eventually aluminum and, and other materials. Sure. Okay. So a 20 foot or 40 foot container coming into the port of Ningbo can get to the furnace quickly versus, you know, before the highways were built, that would have been quite a challenge to get that much scrap in one place. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and the, the advent, if, if you will, of, of the Chinese market was historically impactful to the scrap industry. And I used to take a taxi to work because the subways there, as everybody knows, are kind of crowded. Mm -hmm. And I would cross the street at the same point every day. And after about eight months, a, a policeman on the corner uh, suggested that I was this, not allowed to cross here. And he gave me a letter, which, of course, I didn't understand. I took it to my office. Okay. And I thought I was going to go to jail or something. And uh, my administrator said, no, but you must write a letter of apology for doing this. <laughs> so she wrote the letter of apology. See, uh, which I presented to the policeman oh. the next day. And I kept a copy of it. And every morning when I crossed in the same place that I wasn't supposed to, I would show them the letter and everything was cool. So <laughs> I like that. So it's kind of uh, an apology other, letter and a permission slip all rolled into one. Uh, something like that. But it, it just <laughs> spoke of, and I was probably looked at as a total boor, but whatever. <laughs> um, I also uh, loved Hong Kong. Uh -huh. uh, and when I first went there in 1975 or six, it fascinated me. And watching that city evolve into what it became uh, up until the past couple of years, uh, I just have always found that a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, interesting city. And the mm -hmm. same uh, for other parts of, of the region. Uh, mm -hmm. Asia always infatuated me, I guess, because it was so different than, than here. Sure. Uh, India. Uh, the, just going there, uh, I feared going there the first time. Okay. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a middle road when you ask people what they thought of it. They either love it or don't. And I remember getting off the airplane there and seeing 
hundreds upon hundreds of people outside of the airport to greet their family or their friends or whatever. Uh, and of course, the people I was going to visit picked me up at the airport. It was three o'clock in the morning, but it's the most hospitable uh, country, I think. It's just incredible. Uh, and I was there for two and a half weeks. Um, and it was like living in a, in a movie. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, just the, the almost, I want to say overbearing, because that that's, um, can be negative, but it really awakens your senses. Right. Everything, <laughs> sight, smell, crowds, you're never alone. Sure, yep. I, I recall once getting in a, in a uh, an elevator in a very nice hotel, and there was nobody in it. I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to be alone. Of course, as soon as that thought was over, about 10 people piled in and whatever. <laughs> but um, just an amazing country. And Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. I found fascinating okay. as well. Uh, I was uh, there during, uh, toward the end of their civil war. Mm-hmm. But as a good friend of mine said, it's the best oxymoron there is, a civil war. So I thought mm-hmm. it'd be okay. Um, and I was, uh, there were incidences like walking to the lobby of a hotel where there are 20 uh, armed guards with machine guns. Yeah. That's a little unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, I prefer to be greeted by a doorman or I don't know, a front <laughs> desk person. Uh, but but it, it uh, opened my eyes to a lot of what's going on uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those, those are standout places. Um, yeah. Terrific. One of the most impactful visits I ever had was within, with my first, within my first couple of weeks of arrival in New York City. Oh, okay. And I was taken to see a, a, a copper uh, refinery in Maspeth, Queens, which I recall mm. was like right on the border of Queens and Brooklyn. And okay. Owned by the, the Phelps Dodge Company. And then to visit a scrapyard in uh, a part of Brooklyn that absolutely scared the living daylights uh, out of me okay it was uh, brownsville and a notoriously dangerous nasty neighborhood mm-hmm. uh and believe me it, it uh and of course my colleagues played played me on it but uh it was uh opened my eyes to this kid from vancouver canada okay you know, uh, so a lot of uh-huh. places had a, a major impact and uh, fortunate to have had the opportunity. Sure. That's terrific. Bob, I want to close with a topic I know is important to you. This isn't the first time we've ever had a, a conversation. And I will say it, to some extent, I, I think of you as being ahead of the curve on this topic a little bit. And that's sort of um, getting young people involved into the industry and making sure they understand what this industry is all about. So I guess the, in the form of a question, that'll be, can, can you identify one or two key pieces of advice or guidance you would give to a young person who's just entering either the scrap industry or even the international business arena overall? What, uh, what is some, some either wisdom or just helpful tips you can pass along? A good question to know, ask an older man, right? An old man. <laughs> seems like a natural, yes. But I know, you've, you know it is something that's on your mind at times. Yeah, I think it always is. And, and I've had the opportunity to have younger people uh, work with me, um, a couple of whom have become very successful. Uh, I think 
first of all, straightforward, honest approach to business, whether you're buying, selling, or, or engaging uh, with your customers, whether you're in the physical business or the trading business, uh, and getting to make them understand that you have a concern for what they do, how they do it, and what you can do uh, to influence them to do business with you. I think that it's important just to state the facts. Here's who we are, what we do, what we can do for you, and to know them on a level that, that permeates the obvious. I mean, just, I don't know if I'm stating that well, Brian, but um, get to know what they do, what they're doing with your scrap. Mm, I see. What's good for them, but often more important, what's bad for them. Sure. What are they making? How are they handling it? Mm -hmm. uh, that you're involved in a business that, that uh, it was centuries ahead of the environmental movement. You know, if it's done properly and safely, uh, it's the answer to a huge number of, of questions, it, 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 of issues, I should say. It, it, um, we're not talking about strip mining. We're not talking about leaching. We're not talking right. about, uh, you know, we're, if it's handled environmentally properly, mm -hmm. it's the perfect uh, resource recovery system for the world. Uh, for younger people, I would say hang your hat with good, honest employers right. or be one yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's a family business, I would hope that your family has instilled those values in you. Uh, but understanding, it's so important to go and visit the people that are using your scrap. Okay. And if that's 20 miles away, great. If it's financially feasible and it's 8,000 miles away, mm. great. <laughs> and be attuned to the cultural differences between yours and theirs. Uh, and to get to know them, especially on the international level, get to know them personally. Personalize the business. They are as interested in you as you are in them. Okay. And I've had visitors to my home from all over the world. Quite often, it's the first Western home they've ever been in. Hmm. And I can count on one hand the number of times I've been invited to somebody's home uh, overseas, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Asia. Uh, two people in China, maybe three or four in India. Uh, but to personalize the business, because when there is an issue, it really helps to get a solution that, that we're in this together. We know each other's families. We know whatever. And I don't mean it on a phony or superficial basis, but it's in, in a very important aspect. The other thing I would caution and to be aware of is that uh, oceans don't create a safety net when it comes to your receivables. Mm. And understanding uh, look, many countries, especially again, I would say Asians, who ingratiate themselves through their personal traits or their culture, their hospitality, uh, there's still a due diligence that, that is absolutely necessary in uh, credit 
overseas credit, how to protect yourself, um, how to uh, make certain that there are that there's performance on all aspects of the contract, um, and to utilize outside sources when you need to uh, to get information about customers. And there are companies that do that. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of international trade, understand the law. Uh -huh. And there are aspects of American law that disallow certain activities, including mm -hmm. uh, bribing foreign officials, uh, which can be as much as a nice dinner somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, that there are the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the things that right. people need to know. Right. Uh, understand what money laundering is so you don't <laughs> get sucked into doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nuance to this business and especially the international side. And a lot of that stuff kept me up at night mm. for sure. All right. That sounds like a lot of good advice packed into a couple of minutes there, Bob. Well, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure to spend 45 or so minutes with you on the scrap show, Bob Stein. And um, perhaps this won't be the last time we hear from you. Maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll do a chapter two at some point. Because uh, it's uh, you've had a heck of a career. It's fun to talk to you, Bob. And I, I thank you very much for being our guest. It's a pleasure. And please edit out all the stupid things I said. <laughs> I do not promise that, but I'll take a listen, Bob. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> take care, best. Bob. Good to speak with you, Brian. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.